Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you for being here. Please stand up for the reading of God's Word. If you'd like to follow along with the reading and need the Bible, you can be found in the seat backs in front of you. If you know someone who needs a Bible, feel free to give that one to them. We would love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout this week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. It can be found on page 978 in those Bibles. Follow along with me as I read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in the true righteousness and holiness. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this church. Um, Thank you for everyone who's in this church that you have saved us, and um, for the people who need to hear this message this morning who um, don't don't know you yet, that um, you would soften their hearts. Um, I just pray that you would speak through Jason um, and that we would have listening ears. Amen. I got a question for you. I mean it instructively. Uh, no need to get defensive. Usually we're defensive whenever we say this uh, phrase, but who do you think you are? Straight up, like who do you think you are? Who do you believe yourself to be? I know for some of us, many of us, we could say or should be able to say, I'm forgiven. I'm deeply loved by Christ. I am satisfied with all that I have. My thirst is quenched. Um, I'm rescued. I'm, there are many statements we could say. But I, but I want to know, like, I mean, you don't have to tell me. I want you to know. That's what I really want. Like, this is not crowd participation Sunday. That would be weird. But, uh, but I do want you to think about, honestly, be, tell yourself the truth right now. Who do you most believe yourself to be? At two in the morning when you can't go to sleep, who do you, what are you dwelling on? What are you thinking about? When you're alone in the car, between music or podcasts, what are you dwelling on? Where do your thoughts go? Who do you think that you are? Uh, The author in Proverbs tells us in the King James Version, as he thinketh in his heart, I love the way that King James Version is, but as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now we know this physically, that we, for the most part, we are what we eat, for the most part. But certainly spiritually, you are what you think. And Paul, uh, a few weeks ago, um, in our study in Ephesians, but just a chapter or two back, references this powerless life. He's writing, his context is, he's writing to people who have trusted in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They are forgiven people. They are people who have tasted God's grace, but also with people who are starting to wonder and probably starting to see some patterns of sin come back into their life. And they're curious about, are we a real church? Are we truly saved? If I'm, if I'm saved, then why is my life so hard? If I'm saved, why am I still capable of lust? Why am I still capable 
of uh, the things I search on Google and have to go back and clear out the history so no one else sees that. If I'm saved, why am I still so insecure or so prideful? And then also, they probably had questions about Paul. If you're such a good pastor or leader, church planner, why are you in jail? You know, like, why would they throw a man in jail for preaching the gospel? Well, they would, and they did. And so there was some insecurity attached to their identity, and it was leading to some patterns of sin. And Paul referenced this powerless way that we can live our lives. So, so there is a way to um, profess faith in Jesus without possessing faith in Jesus. There are people who think they are Christians, and they are not Christians, Jesus uh, says in his Sermon on the Mount that many will say before him on the day of judgment, we prophesied your name, we cast out devils, we did many wonderful works. In other words, these are people who were a part of the church, had ministries in the church, led groups, went to groups, served, taught kids, made coffee, opened doors, counted deposits, made deposits, assisted pastors, became pastors, planted churches, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. So there is a way, God help us, to profess that you're a Christian while not possessing Christianity. That can happen. That's not what Paul's primarily writing about here. What he's talking about is those who possess their faith, but they live a very powerless life. They live a very normal life. In fact, what he would call normal is when you live your life just like everybody else who lives around us that does not love and trust and worship Jesus. You raise your family the same way. You spend your money the same way. You vacation the same way. Um, you, you, politics and the election cycles impact you the same way. You share the same fears. You share the same hopelessness. You share the same despair. And you share the same hopes. And what Paul would write is to say is we have a power source that we're attached to. And for us to live that powerful life, when I say powerful, I'm not talking about telling the future and, you know, uh, like be it super speaking tongue guy or what, who, whatever it is. I'm talking about the capacity to, when it's not okay around us, that we are okay because of Jesus. He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And I see this day in light of the last day. I see this day in light of the day he'll rip the heavens open and bring heaven to earth, okay? How do we get to, well, it starts, and when we drift out of that, it starts within, what do we think about? What do we dwell on? What is our perspective? And because spiritually, you are what you think. You are what you dwell on. And so Paul eventually, as we work through the text next week, it's going to get in how we treat each other, how we love each other well. But this passage is about how we love ourselves well by preaching the gospel to ourselves. So look with me in verse 17. We've got a lot of work to do, so I'm just going to pick it up and and uh, start carrying the ball down the field. Paul says, now I say and testify in the Lord. What you think like Perry Mason, courtroom scene, or that you can't handle the truth scene, you know? Like, that's, Paul's getting, getting real. He's gonna, we're gonna get to yell here in a minute. He's gonna have an exclamation mark. I always like that. Uh, but Paul is testifying in the Lord, in the name of Jesus, he's saying that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, before we go to define that. Let's just stop and say that if Jesus has saved you, he has changed you. But what we got to ask is what does that change look like? I grew up going to church camp as a kid. I think church camp is a good tool. It's a good thing. But I remember sometimes like people just missing the whole point of their testimony. Like someone would give their testimony and it would go something like, you know, I was very unattractive and lonely and hopeless. And then I met Jesus. And then Jesus fixed my football throwing arm, and now I play quarterback. 
and we win championships. And I had nobody. Now the prom queen is my girlfriend. Like, who, who heard those stories? Like, like no, that's not the cha- Like, good on you if you can outthrow the other guys, and your dad is probably the coach. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> if I ever coach, my boy's playing. He's quarterback. I don't care how bad he is. And, and I may be the backup, you know? So I get it. But what does the change look like? Does it look like you were a loser, now you're a winner? Does it look like you um, were ignorant about the things of God, now you have theology, you were a bad person, now you're a moral person? The reality is that we've been saved from self-absorption, a superior complex or an inferiority complex. We've been saved from putting our hope in earthly things like presidents and uh, taxes and uh, politics and our teams winning their championships and stuff like that. Our kids being exactly who we need them to be to feel like we did a good job. Like we've been rescued from where we put our hope. We've been rescued from where our identity used to come from. And we've gone from guilty before God to innocent before God because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Which means there's a way that we hope that's different than the way our friends hope who are moral people but don't love Jesus. That's what always confused me as a kid. Like if the Christians were always the good guys and non-Christians were the bad guys, it always confused me like, you know, I'd let Mormons house sit for me. They're really nice people. You know, they just put their hope in like Jesus of the other planets or whatever it is. You know, and their, arm, yeah, their Jesus is always arm wrestling the devil, his half brother. I, I don't fully understand, but I know there's a difference between that and what we learn in the scripture. And we love you if you're more. We love you so much. You're at a safe place. You can come argue with me after service if you want. That's fine. But I get to preach, so that's what we're going to do. Um, but we believe that Jesus is creator, not created, and that Satan is created by the creator, and he loses because God is creator. And we're guilty because we as creation rebelled against our creator, God, and Jesus came in our place, lived the life that we failed to live, which means he was righteous and innocent before God with all he said and all he did. And then he goes to the cross and dies in our place, the death we deserve because of our sin, but he traded places with us, taking our guilt and giving us his innocence, raises from the dead to give us hope beyond temporary circumstances. So if that has happened to you, it should change you. The way that you use your money should be different than people than you use their money that don't have that hope and don't have that innocence. The way you relate to love and lead and serve your family should be different than those who don't know Jesus and have not been rescued by Jesus. The way we use authority and power and influence, the way that we use sex and the way that we relate to other people as brothers and sisters rather than objects, um, it all should be impacted by the way we've been saved by Jesus. So Paul's writing to Gentiles and saying, don't act like Gentiles. So some of them are like, what? What he's saying is, you now have a dual citizenship, not a dual identity. I want you to see the church of Ephesus as a city within the city of Ephesus. And that's what Grace Point Church is in in the city of Surprise here in the West Valley. We are a city within a city where we live a countercultural life than the other people who live around us. We want to look enough like them, like we're, you know, like I'm not up here in a suit that don't fit and, you know, dressing real weird, talking real weird. Like I don't all of a sudden want you to walk through the door and like the way we speak as Christians, like, hey, brother, like we all of a sudden turn into Hulk Hogan. You know, like if that's you and you're from the South and that's what you do, that's fine. This is a safe place to have a brother and sister, so-and-so, like we're all nuns or whatever. That's okay. 
That's fine. I know that's a cultural thing and that tries to show sincerity. But what should be different about the way we use speech is not that we call each other brother and sister. It's that our words build each other up. And if someone walks out of the room, we don't talk about them. Because we talk to people, we don't talk about people. We've been changed by Jesus. We're different. We have a dual citizenship, which means we're, our primary residence is in heaven, and it's coming. And our secondary residence is in surprise, in the great state of Arizona, in this great United States of America, where we eat red meat on the 4th of July and blow stuff up to celebrate that we won, you know? That's okay. You can embrace that. You can be patriotic. It doesn't mean you don't embrace your dual citizenship. It's just my primary citizenship is that of heaven. So there's a way we relate to our neighbor and relate to our church family. There's a way that we use money, sex, and power that's different than the other people who have that one citizenship that's earthly, okay? And so Paul's saying, you're gonna be tempted to live like people who don't know and love Jesus. Don't do it. Well, what does that look like? Well, he finishes the verse in saying, well, in the futility of their minds. I want you to notice the pattern that he's saying this all begins in the inner man or the inner woman, the way that we see the world, the way we believe and see things to be. It starts out with futility and the way that we think about things and the way that we think about people. Verse 18, Paul would say that they, people like us but don't know Jesus, they're darkened in their understanding. So there's, there's the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I know somebody's like, what about, and Paul's like, all the impurities, you know, every kind of impurity. In the Greek, it means all the impurities. And I just want to pause there. Like when you read that, I don't know if, you're, if you envision somebody into like Wicca and the occult or like with the Ouija board or like sacrificing goats. Like, no, he's talking about just normal people, the way normal people live their life. This is how they live. The average way to think. This is the how to think about normal life. It's a deception. And what is it? Here, here's the simple way to say it. And I'm going to use a big word. I don't usually use big words, but I saved up some money and I went and bought one and I cashed it in and I brought one in today. But to think normally about life in the description that Paul gives about people in feudal mindsets, darkened in their understanding and alienated in, uh, from God because of the ignorance that is in us. No theocentric eternal perspective. Like What? Theocentric would mean no godly-centered way to view the world. Christocentric would be a Christ-centered way to see the world. If you hang around Grace Point, you're going to hear the phrase gospel-centered around here, but a gospel-centric approach to where the gospel informs the way that I relate to people, the gospel informs the way that I deal with sin, the gospel, my sin, the gospel relate, you know, informs the way that I deal with other people's sin. Do I go to grudges? Do I release forgiveness? It impacts the way I see work. It impacts the way I see rest. It impacts the way that I see church. It impacts the way that I see my neighbors, my HOA, politics, culture, arts, education. Everything has this theocentric perspective that is also eternal. What do I mean by eternal perspective? That I see today in light of the last day that I can live right now, that this coming election, I will see it in light of the day that there will be no more elections because Christ is king and he's on his way. That's not how people live that don't know, love, trust, and worship Jesus. 
I just want to put it in the room. Like sometimes when we think of someone who doesn't love Jesus, we're thinking about the person who's destroyed their life with addiction and they're abusing all the relationships. They can't hold down a job. They're not successful at work and they're poorly uneducated. And that is true that you will find that. But you'll also find people who are very smart and know the scriptures well and can play crossword puzzles for Jesus with you, but they're not living with this theocentric eternal perspective. You'll know people who are very successful at work and their kids make very good grades. The missing piece is not the Proverbs and and information. The missing piece is revelation that we're sinful and we need a savior and his name is Jesus and that will change everything about us. And so what normal is, is YOLO and YOLO will lead to FOMO. And some of you look at me like, what in the world? Did did he say that in church? (laughs) That ain't what I said. (laughs) I know what you thought I said. YOLO is you only live once. And my reply to that is, yeah, and it's forever, okay? The other one would be FOMO, which would be the fear of missing out. And this is a normal perspective. This is people who get on the socials, they get on the gram, they live for the gram, they live from the gram, and you are, your life is, jealousy is very normal. Covetousness is very normal for you. Uh, your, the way you see yourself is the way uh, that you want to be perceived on the socials. And so this, this is living for the moment. It's very normal to live for the moment. Probably the, the easiest way to attach a non-theocentric eternal perspective is the way we use money and relationships. So just using money, I know you've heard these terms. How many of you have heard about the prosperity mindset or the poverty mindset, uh, the wealth mindset or the middle-class mindset? Raise your hand if you've heard. Okay, for those of you who haven't heard, I know what you do with your Google now. Uh, There's a way to live for the weekend. I live for Friday. No theocentric eternal perspective. I have a weekend-centric and payday-centric, and what you do is you work hard. not saying you're lazy. You'll work. You'll bust it. You get paid, and your paycheck is spent as soon as it's deposited in your account. You might be cell phone poor. You might be Air Jordans poor. You know, you might be video games poor, uh, whatever it is. Or you might be new rims and and boombox in your truck poor. Whatever You know, you're you're spending money as soon as you get it. You have a lot of toys. The middle class mindset would be that you you might be house poor. You might have a pool in the backyard, but you can't put chlorine in it, you know? Uh, You might have uh, a nice vehicle, but you resent it because every month when it's due, you're like trying, you know, bend the laws of the universe around making that payment. And you're hoping that at the end of this year, you'll get your W-2 and you'll send it in, you'll do your taxes and you'll get a refund and you'll go on a vacation. If you don't have enough, you just go borrow a little bit because the average American spends at least 125% of every dollar that they make. That's very normal to you. And so you may not even be paycheck to paycheck. You're not weekend to weekend, but you're year to year. You have no vision beyond next year and next year's vacation. And in fact, if you can just make it to vacation, you get the escape from the life that you have. And that's really what you're looking for. No theocentric eternal perspective. That's called normal. The next kind of normal is the wealthy mindset to where you're prepared for retirement. It's going to come. It's probably going to be okay. You've invested well. You have 401ks. You have other interests. You have other businesses. That's fine. And you learned the art of turning a dollar into $10 and turning $10 into $1,000 and turning $1,000 into a million dollars. You get the idea. That's great. But it still can have no theocentric eternal perspective. How do you see relationships? Here's the, way, here's the normal way to see relationships, that they are there to resource your desires, to resource your feelings, okay? 
We are still a people motivated by fear and guilt and shame. We're afraid people will find out who we really are. We're motivated to cover up the pain of the past. We've said and done things that we regret deeply, that people know about us, that we hope they don't tell anyone else about. That impacts the people we hang around, the things that we do. Shame gets attached to us. Shame is not so much the things that you've said and done, it's things that were said and done to you or things that weren't said and done to you. Maybe some of you never got a hug from somebody unless it led to something else. You've never said, I love you. When someone says, I love you, what you experience is, I use you. And that's where shame comes from. We start to believe that we're less than everyone else. There's missing pieces in our life. And so the way we'll relate to people, we will use people. And, and there's pr two primary ditches that we fall in. One is pride and one is insecurity. And pride and insecurity are the way that we view ourselves. And, and the trouble with pride and insecurity is both of them are complete self-absorption. So no theocentric eternal perspective means you either live for the weekend, live for a vacation, maybe live for retirement. You don't have a vision for beyond the grave and everyone in your life is there to resource you and what you need and your gratifications and it's all about you. And so in pride, you'll use people to feel superior. You'll, through comparison, you need to conquer, okay? In insecurity, you'll use people because you feel inferior, and you use comparison to look for someone you think is superior and you'll become codependent in that relationship and you believe that if you can just be friends with them or be with them romantically or get married to them or work for them, work with them, get their name beside your name, somehow that will give you dignity. You'll get the pieces that you were missing because your dad didn't give them to you or you didn't know your mom or whatever it is. You, you use people to try to satisfy these things about you. That's the normal way to live a life. And what Paul says is don't do that. If you're a Christian, don't do that. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. What he's saying is you didn't find Christ through pride and insecurity. You found Christ through humility. You didn't hear the gospel in the culture. You didn't Google how to be a man and discover Jesus unless you went through, like somehow landed on a church page or something. He says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so what he's saying is you've experienced not just information, you, you've not just experienced fear, guilt, and shame, you've experienced revelation that's leading to transformation that will free you from deception so that you could have a theocentric eternal perspective in how to live your life and how to talk to yourself. You didn't hear the gospel from the culture or the pagan prophets of the day. We're, we're prone to build buildings and websites for the things we worship. They're called idols. Out here in the West Valley, we have our idols. You may think of an idol as something that you'd go to some third world country and find some kind of statue made. Well, the way that we build statues is we make banks because we worship money. We build schools because we worship education. We build gyms because we worship fitness. It just keeps, we build restaurants because we worship food. We build storage because we worship stuff. We build garages because we worship our vehicles. We build bigger homes because we worship as attached to our identity, like I deserve a bigger house than this. You can see how it goes. Now, the work of a Christian is not to just reject or receive and say, well, we either have homes or we have poverty. We'll either have wealth or we'll have nothing. We'll either eat or we won't. It's how do we redeem this? How do you put everything where it goes? So what a Christian does is it, it doesn't have idols. It worships Jesus, it, like it's a thing. We worship Jesus. We're not robots yet. 
but Elon's working on it. Anyways, I, we don't have time. Never mind. Quit it, Jason. Control yourself. Okay, I'm back. But what we do is we take, let's just do those three. That's the ones we use most as we put things in their rightly place. How do we put money in its rightly place as a Christian? Well, we don't use people to love money. I think that's the best explanation for it. Christ redeems that appetite in us. And when we're faithful to Jesus and faithful to others, we will use money to love other people well. The way that we use power and influence and being a dad and being a mom and being a pastor or a supervisor or a business owner or a police officer or a firefighter, a little league coach, anybody with any level of influence at all, how do you use your influence? Well, you can either use people to love the power you have or you can use the power you have to love people well. Then especially with sex, you can use people because you love sex or you can use sex inside of um, heterosexual monogamous marriage to love your spouse well. The thing is, is there's always someone on the other side of wealth. There's always someone on the other side of sex. There's always someone on the other side of um, influence and power. And all of those things are tools for how we're to relate to other people well. And, and the normal way is to see those things as ultimate and put those things in the place of glory and then put people between us and those things and use people to get those things. That's what idolatry is. So my hope is for us as a church that we could name our idols and put things in its right place and use it as the way that God has intended. Because we didn't become Christians by worshiping sex, is what Paul's saying. We didn't become Christians by worshiping money. It was through revelation, the gospel you heard from that church down the street or that church planner who came to town, or someone who said, listen to this Billy Graham sermon, or read this book, or listen to this song. Someone loved you well and in counterculture, engaged your culture, you heard the truth, and the truth sets you free. And it changes the way you see yourself, and it changes the way you see others, and it changes the way that you see Creator God and His Son, Jesus. So the Lord didn't meet us where where we should be. He met us where we are, but He loves us enough not to leave us where we were, and He brings us along this journey in verse 22, to put off the old self, okay? Put it off. Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed. So stop doing that. Stop dwelling on those things and start dwelling on these other things because it's, this, it's in your mind. It starts in the things you think about and the things you dwell on. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we have been saved to, I'll use the phrase again, a theocentric, eternal perspective of truth. That is what should most inform our thoughts, most inform our attitudes, our affections, our beliefs, and our behaviors. What does that look like? What is theocentric, Christocentric, gospel-centric? Christ is at the center of all we think, say, and do. That's what worship is. You may think of worship as singing after the sermon or the song we're trying to get to know before the sermon. Worship is the way we use our money to love God and love others. Worship is the way we use sex. It's the way we use power. It's the way that we engage work. It's the way that we sleep at night and get rest. It's the way that we um, take care of our bodies as stewards. It's the way that we treat our family as stewards. We see Jesus as the owner. We see him as the king. We see ourselves as family, little brothers, little sisters, but ultimately stewards of the resources and relationships that God has given us. The second way that the theocentric eternal perspective of truth informs us is that's where our hope is. Our hope is in heaven. We live every day in light of the last day. 
That's how we're okay, even when it's not okay. And Christians are not people pretending like, it's okay, everything's fine, it's gonna be fine. No, it's not fine. We have responsibilities. Somebody needs to go to work. Somebody needs to go, we need doctors because somebody's sick. We're gonna fight the sickness all that we can. We're gonna pray for it, take treatment, whatever we need to do. Um, whenever my kids, things aren't going well at home, we need to deal with that. We're not going to pretend like nothing wrong is happening. We're going to be responsible. We're going to vote. We're going to go to work. We're going to take naps. I like naps. Naps are great. You need rest. You're going to go to bed and get all your full eight hours of sleep. You're going to fill your belly with food. You need responsibility. You need to work. You need to play. You need to engage politics in a responsible way. But you understand that heaven is not in your marriage. Heaven is not in your kids. Heaven is not even in Grace Point Church. Heaven is not the way we do church. Heaven is not who your president is going to be. Heaven is heaven, and it's on its way. Christ is king, Lord of lords, and the sky will rip open, and he will bring it, and death will die. All relationships will fire on all cylinders the way they're supposed to. We'll relate to God the way that we were supposed to relate to him. We will be freed from the darkness of despair. We will be freed from lies and deception and lies that we tell ourselves. Because the truth is setting us free. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said it. John wrote it down. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have a theocentric eternal perspective of truth that is setting us free. One of my favorite stories um, in the Bible is that of Lazarus. And it's cool because Jesus shows up, man. Be, so here's how I first started out being a pastor. I said yes to everything. The same way I planted a church. I just said yes to everybody all the time and put me in proximity to people and got to lead people to Jesus, baptize people, train people, recruit leaders, all that. But like in the early days of pastoral ministry, I just thought the pastor was the guy who was friends with everybody, nice to everybody, had to say yes to everybody. And then you read like Jesus where it's like everyone starts asking him to do stuff and he just walks away. (laughs) And they're like, where's Jesus? And they're like, he's sleeping because y'all made him tired. You know, like that's literally read the Bible, like the, the storm and the boat and Jesus is down there sleeping while everyone else is freaking out. Like he'll like feed the 5,000. Everybody's like, Jesus, we want more, more magic tricks. And he's like, hi, I'm taking a nap. And he just gets away. And one of the weirdest stories is that of Lazarus and Jesus. Lazarus is one of Jesus' very best friends. He's super close with Lazarus and his sisters and that family that he'd stay with them. And he's off on a work trip doing ministry. And he gets word that Lazarus is very, very sick. And they'd love for him to come home and be with the family. This is like when you have friends who are like family to you, that's how close Jesus is with Lazarus. Okay, It's as though he's his brother. Okay, And so... Jesus hears about it, and he just stays a couple more days where he's at. Like, you are totally destroying their expectations of what they want from you. And so finally, when Jesus gets ready, he goes to see Lazarus, who is dead and has been dead long enough to smell really bad, okay? And the sisters run out and see Jesus, where you been? What have you been doing? If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus is just like, I know. And so then he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, let's get it from Lazarus's perspective. Lazarus is happy. Lazarus is thinking, I don't have to pay my taxes. I don't have to file my taxes. 
don't have to deal with my sisters. I'm not sinning anymore. I'm not having to sit through Jesus' sermons and be like, golly, man, you got me, you know? Whoa, when, when, come Lord Jesus. Well, he already did. I'm in Abraham's bosom, baby. This is awesome. And then he starts hearing, Lazarus. And I know why Jesus said it like three times, because Lazarus was like me when I was a kid, and Dad said, it's time to go. And I just acted like I couldn't hear him. <laughs> Lazarus did not want to come back. No way. Jesus like, Lazarus. He's like, are you serious? <sighs> Watch this, guys. Jesus like, Lazarus. Lazarus just disappears. Comes back into the grave, wrapped up in all these nasty clothes, grave clothes. And he comes up and he walks out and he has to strip off the grave clothes. And then everybody finds out Lazarus is raised from the dead. So all the government and the religious elite of the day get together and conspire to kill Lazarus. I bet he was like, I'm right here. I'm right here. Send me back, please. You know, all that being said, you and I are like Lazarus often. We have been raised to new life and we're walking around with stinky clothes, okay? It's like you got new boots and you went out in the yard and you didn't pick up the dog poop and you're walking around with it on you like it's normal and people are like, bro, <laughs> If you know, you know. So here are the deceitful desires. Here are just some things that we walk around with as Christians that we should not, okay? Renew your mind. A theocentric, eternal perspective goes to war on these things. Number one, the belief that you are the things that you've done, that you're still guilty when Christ is paid in full. You are not the things that you've done. He has fully forgiven you of the lies, of the slander, of the theft, of the covetousness. Some of you decimated relationships. Some of you obliterated your marriage. Some of you drove your children far away from you. And you earned every piece of all of that. You did it. You said it. And that is not who you are. Christ's blood pays in full for even your sins. The sins you won't forgive yourself over, Christ has forgiven you. And your grudge with yourself is pathetic compared to the work of Christ. Enjoy forgiveness. Preach forgiveness to yourself. You are fully forgiven. We are not making light of what you've done. What you did was heinous, and it caused Christ to die. But his cross and his resurrection eclipses all of any of us could do. The second deceitful desire, the stuff we'll tell ourselves, is that you are the things that were done against you. Not only are you the shameful things that happened to you, but you deserved it. You must have wanted that to happen. You put yourself in that position. Or maybe you really believe because no one ever told you they loved you who should have told you they loved you. The truth may just be you had really crappy parents or maybe a horrible sibling or maybe a really bad environment. And we don't need to make light of the traumatic things that happened. And that's not what gospel-centered thinking does. It makes much of the rescue of Jesus that he comes in like a soldier liberating you from the deceitful lies of the, of the demonic around you, making you believe that that's what you deserved. See, shame-filled people do shameful things so that they can feel shame in light of their relationships. It's a horrible cycle. If that's who we believe we are, then that's the way that we behave. And you're set free by Jesus. The other one that we're all prone to do is conceal our sin. 
And concealing our sin, the way I like to say it is it's like putting a great white shark in the swimming pool. It's like putting rattlesnakes in your bed. It's like having a lion in the house, and one day that sucker's going to grow up and it's going to maul you to death. And you're going to be like, can you believe that happened? And we're like, yes, yes, that's what sharks do. That's what snakes do. That's what lions do. And you're trying to tame your sin and, and keep it on the side. You're, you're, you're porn addicted. It's, it's okay as long as I delete my history. The way that you treat other people, ah, nobody knows who I really am at work. I work, I, I drive far enough to work. I, have, I get to have, two, you have dual identity rather than dual citizenship if that's the way you're living your life. So what do we what do, we do about that? We, man, we take that to someone. We confess it. I'll get there. What do you do when something happens in a relationship, a relationship gets fragmented? It's so absurd to me how we will kill a relationship whenever Jesus was killed in our place so that he died the death that we all deserve so that our relationships could thrive, so that churches didn't have to split every five years and call that church planting, you know? Like he lives again so that things can live and be raised from the dead and sin can be confessed. And so we can release forgiveness, we can move from face-to-face blaming each other to shoulder-to-shoulder naming sin as we worship Christ. Then also, here's another deceitful desire, a way that we delude ourselves is thinking that God will only love us if we behave. Like, as long as I do right, me and God are good, but as soon as I get out of line, what you then start to try to do is improve yourself, and through self-improvement, I'll get my way back to God. And the reality is God never left. He's just watching you live like a dummy, you know? Here's the way to renew your mind. You aren't the things you've done. You're forgiven. You are fully forgiven, not partially forgiven. Not like got to the red zone and couldn't get in like the Dallas Cowboys. You're fully forgiven. You aren't the things done against you. You have a good, godly dad and a good, godly big brother in Jesus. You have been rescued. That is who you are. You can confess your sin because sin is powerless over you. There are consequences for sin, and consequences are good because that means you have a dad in heaven. If you get caught in sin or confess your sin, that's good news. The consequences are training us out of those patterns and out of those thoughts and out of those behaviors. It's for those who there's no consequences. That's God's passive wrath. He just lets you do whatever you want, lets you say whatever you want, lets you believe you're getting away with it until you stand before him in judgment. Sin is powerless. So if you feel like you have the rattlesnake in the bed, the lion in the house, what you need to do is just go to someone and give that piece of your heart to someone you trust and say, it ain't good. I'm not doing good right now on whatever it is, the things I'm thinking, the things I'm saying, the behaviors I have that I'm keeping in the shadows. I need to bring this stuff into the light. The gospel is most powerful when it is proclaimed and sin is most powerless whenever it is confessed. Confess your sin to those you trust. Release forgiveness whenever you've been sinned against. The renewed mind gets shoulder to shoulder. We see ourselves as worshipers of Jesus, shoulder to shoulder at the cross, naming our sin rather than face to face blaming each other. And you need to believe and tell yourself that nothing can separate you from the love of God through Christ. It is an illogical, scandalous love. Tell yourself the truth. I don't deserve this love. But here's what happens. I don't deserve it, so I could never get it. Okay? It's not true. You don't deserve it, and you get it. That's the scandal. God sets his affection on you. The Scriptures doesn't say 
that God sends his Holy Spirit to those who behave. We can't behave apart from the Holy Spirit. He sends spirit to those who will believe. And the Spirit of God renews us, transform us, and it begins with the renewal of our mind. So who do you think you are? When you're laying in bed at night for 20, you know, two in the morning trying to go back to sleep, dwell on how forgiven you are. Dwell on how rescued you are. Dwell on how what sin can I drag to the light and put it to death? Get the snakes out of the bed. Give them to the snake. I don't know. The metaphor is breaking down, okay? <laughs> let's just let's get out of that. Let's pray.